You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. curriculum where members of the Christian Humanist Radio Network read slowly and deliberately through Columbia University's Humanities Reading List. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, typically of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband Michael and our cat Dorothy Parker. I have a PhD in Literature and Gender Studies from Florida State University, and during the day I'm a digital community manager for a startup serving women entrepreneurs. With me today I have Christina B. Lake and Jordan Poss. Hi, Christina and Jordan. Hello. Hey. <laughs> Christina is the Clyde S. Kilby Professor of English at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, where she lives with her husband and son, and she's also one of my regular co-panelists on the CFP, where she talks about poetry, literary theory, and science fiction. Jordan Poss is frequently on both the Sectarian Review and the City of Man podcast, and he teaches history at a college in upstate South Carolina. Really happy to have you both here tonight to talk about books 19 through 21 of the Odyssey. Uh, These books are interesting because they're near the end, but before the real violent stuff starts. Uh, This is the part of the text where Odysseus has to figure out what to do when he gets to the place he's been trying to get to the whole time. Uh, So I think that is a very human part of these books, because I think we've all been in a situation like that, right? We're so focused on accomplishing a goal that once we get there, we're not quite sure what to do. Uh, But of course, unlike Odysseus, we don't have Athena with us. Uh, So things get pretty interesting (laughs) for him nonetheless. Um, As I said, these books kind of exist to ratchet up the tension before we get to the real violence in the death of the suitors, uh, which we all know as readers is coming for a while. And one of the ways that happens is that there's all this shared knowledge that the poet and that Odysseus as a character um, are playing around with this idea of like, how do you know a person? Um, If you know them, do you think the same way? How do you share um, knowledge and experiences? So I want to talk that out with uh, all the people and deities that Odysseus interacts with uh, in these books, and there are lots of them. Athena, Telemachus, Penelope, uh, and uh, Odysseus's nurse, Eurycleia. So are there any of these people that he shares knowledge with that are immediately interesting to you? Where would you like to start uh, as we unpack these books and unpack uh, Odysseus's arrival back in Ithaca? Well, can you remind um, us and the listeners, how did Odysseus reveal himself to Telemachus? Because I don't remember that and it's not in this section Uh, And it's been too long since I've read that section. Do you remember? Oh, goodness. I 
don't off the top of my head. Jordan, can you help us out? Yeah, I was actually on that episode, um, which we're recording these all out of order, so it, it feels, right. I, I can't even <laughs> think of you know where in the story that comes in. It, it was much earlier in the poem than I remembered. Uh, he is staying in Eumaeus's little swine herding shed down by the shore. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, again, you get Eumaeus as kind of the faithful, you know, the first faithful member of the household that Odysseus meets. And while Odysseus is staying there in his beggar's disguise, um, Athena, you know, appears to Telemachus and gives him kind of a kick out of Menelaus's door uh, to get on back and resume the plot. Uh, and so he, he manages to slip past the ambush laid for him by the suitors uh, and get back to Ithaca where he has the ships drop him off in a undisclosed location so that he can kind of surprise everyone. And the first place he stops is Eumaeus's hut. Uh, so that they, they are reunited in that hut. And uh, after a little bit of, um, again, Odysseus kind of feeling everyone out, which is something that we see over and over and over again, as, mm-hmm. as you've kind of implied, uh, Victoria. Uh, which I, I think is one of the most psychologically interesting parts of the book, the way he kind of both plays with and is clearly nervous about the people he's interacting with. Interestingly, Odysseus waits for Eumaeus to leave on some errand, and then he just one-on-one reveals himself to, to Telemachus, and uh, something that we, we parked on a little bit, uh, a, a very interesting detail, because this poem is full of them, is this concluding moment in which whichever book of the poem that was where uh Eumaeus has returned they're all sitting down to a meal but Odysseus and Telemachus share this kind of knowing silent glance <laughs> uh across mm-hmm. the fire at each other while uh, Eumaeus who has not been let in on anything yet uh kind of contentedly eats with what he thinks is the you know the kind of rising master of the household and just some beggar who has happened to be coming by uh which is a really really interesting scene Yes, that. thank you for that, because I just didn't remember that part. Because what struck me in reading this particular section is this decision, why he reveals himself to some people and not to others, right? There's no necessarily particular logic about why he wouldn't reveal himself to Penelope. And so I'm just wondering what the two of you think about why he just felt like it was so important for him not to be revealed to Penelope at this point. Versus immediately revealing himself to Telemachus, and um, to and of course then the nurse discovers uh, because of the scar. So I, I my really big question is why is that? Is there something about the logic of the poem that requires that? I don't know if it has to do with the logic of the poem. Um, my assumption about Telemachus versus Penelope is that. A lot of this book is about Telemachus figuring out what it means to be his own man, right? And what it means to be to, to be growing into his identity as master of their house. And, and how is he responsible for the hospitality? And how is he supposed to treat the suitors? And what really belongs to him? All that stuff. So um, I think everything that uh, Jordan summarized for us about the way that Odysseus and Telemachus connect over this meal since so much kind of masculine relationship building throughout the Odyssey is done over these great um, banquets. I think that makes a lot of sense um, in just in terms of uh, Telemachus growing into a man. Penelope, I think, changes because I think 
at first she's got so much to lose if she knows who he is too early in terms of like all of these violent drunk terrible men are in her house and she's obligated to them to a certain extent and and what's gonna happen if they um you know are are dissatisfied for various reasons and and what role does she have to play in terms of like being at least appearing to be willing to be married to them um but then later and we can we can talk about this too later in this section i'm pretty convinced that penelope knows who he is earlier than she lets on and that they're sort of playing a game with each other interesting that yeah i'd like to hear more about that because i i do find it to be such an interesting kind of conundrum right that that the nurse is able to recognize him and she is not. That seems odd. So I'm interested in your your sort of textual reading of of, of uh, Penelope knowing earlier. Um, I don't know. Do we do we want to go um straight there, or is there a, a particular section you'd like to look at, um, Christina? No, no, I just. This is just speaking to that larger issue of recognition, right, which is so important to this section um, and why it is that the Homer poet, whoever he is, wanted to have certain people know and certain people not know and the delayed, right, response. So I'm just so curious uh, because it seems like so much one of the themes of the poem is home, right? And it seems that Penelope would know him so well that she would know that she would, that she would be able to see through the disguise. And I just find it very odd in a, in an ongoing way in my like what third or fourth reading of this poem in a different translation that, that she doesn't, um, that she doesn't recognize him. And I'm just curious about why we think that is the case. Well, you mentioned um, two things. You talked about knowledge. I want to, can we take a second to talk about Athena's lamp um, and, and what yes. ha- what happens with Athena's lamp? Um, because I I don't remember, I mean, I've, I've read the Odyssey several times, though never um, as in-depth as when I'm preparing for this show. And I've mostly thought of that lamp as a metaphor, but it's it's literalized here, like, walking around with a lamp that mortal people can see and Telemachus even remarks on it so I think that's interesting in terms of like um you know the act of knowledge is literally shedding a light on something um here so that's what are we supposed to make of that in terms of like the power that the gods have over people's lives here. I, did you guys have thoughts on that? And did you know that Athena's lamp was literal? Am I just uh, slow on the uptake there? <laughs> Could we, you have the Wilson translation, right? Could you just direct me to the passage that you're thinking about? Sure. Um... And Jordan, please chime in on this issue while we're trying to find it uh it's line (laughs) um 32 ish of book 19 uh 
Athena stood by them with a golden lamp. She made majestic light. Telemachus said, Father, my eyes have noticed something very strange. The palace walls, the handsome fir-wood rafters and crossbeams, and the pillars high above are visible, as if a fire were lit. Some god mm-hmm. from heaven must be in the house. So he even knows, like, that it's a god. I, that's so interesting to me. Yeah, Jordan, what's your take on that? I'm not sure how enlightening I'm, I'm sorry i couldn't think of another word <laughs> oh i'm not i'm not sure but, how enlightening this is but i, I do love the fact that I'm, I'm reading from the fables translation uh odysseus is so used to this stuff by now uh in the fables translation he replies yes. quiet get a grip on yourself no more questions now it's just the way of the gods who rule olympus yes. uh, which af- after 10 years of traveling like he has and 10 years of warfare that he's seen I mean, this is old hat, which I, which is interesting. I wonder, speaking of the light of Athena and knowledge and recognition and the, the conundrum about Penelope, I don't want to hijack the specific thing we're talking about, but the lamp makes me think of all those instances in this poem as well as in the Iliad when the gods either literally or metaphorically cloud people's vision. Um, yes. Because, uh, you know, you get it over and over again in the Iliad where the gods hide people or just kind of suddenly put this almost hysterical blindness on their enemies so they just can't even recognize them. Um, And I wonder, in Penelope's case, I wonder how much that has to do with the social distance that she maintains as a hostess from her guests um, so that she can't physically inspect Odysseus the way that Euryclea gets the opportunity to later. Because it, it's apparent that Euryc- the only thing that tips Euryclea off is this very distinct scar. Right. Which is, which and she's is such bathing a, him very intimately, right? Like, this is right. like, I am bathing your feet. And, right. And right, which huge. is, ex- yes, and that's, that's the kind of thing that a slave would be asked to do that a hostess would go nowhere near. And, nowhere and, near. Yeah, and that's a, such apparently a great Penelope, point. Right. Apparently Penelope is far enough away. She hasn't, it, it's unclear in the narrative, but it seems like she's sort of still there, but giving oh, Odysseus yeah. enough privacy that, that she is yes. unable to hear this conversation. Yes. That, in fact, right. the nurse turns toward Penelope to right. say something and then Athena blocks it by right. having Penelope turn away. I had not ever noticed that before. And part of it, I love this Wilson translation. I'm going to say it again because I've said it every single time. I love this translation <laughs> um, because of its clarity and it's sort of pretty that Athena did not want Penelope to know right at that moment mm-hmm. because the nurse is like, this is Odysseus, you know, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, she totally deflects it. And, and so that I, I find really intriguing, you know, but yeah, she has to be somewhere nearby that, that the nurse could actually turn her head uh, toward Penelope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and yet far enough away that the visual disguise, I mean, her only interaction with Odysseus is going to be to speak to him and see him mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, actually putting her hands on him the way Euryclea mm-hmm. does as a, as a slave who's drawing a bath for him, which I, I don't know how much that has. I'm, I'm thinking of that in contrast to the light that Athena is literally shedding in this earlier passage, I don't, I don't know how much, um, again, I don't know how much that can enlighten both, both sections, but they, they do seem to strike some kind of either deliberate or accidental 
contrast with each other. And uh, mm-hmm. in terms of um, sort of in a similar vein, uh, talking about Euryclea physically being able to touch him, um, and that's something that Penelope, because of her station, can't do. There's another level of separation there because the the intimacy that um, Penelope has with Odysseus that she doesn't quite yet know is Odysseus is when she's talking about the clothes that she gave Odysseus. So not only are the clothes sort of a layer of separation from the skin that Euryclea gets to touch, she like isn't even touching the physical clothes herself. She's just recalling them. So there's like double layers of, of separation where that shared um, physical knowledge is concerned. Yes. And that is how Odysseus calms her that, um, that this beggar actually knows Odysseus is by describing that full on all the wardrobe. And then she's like, Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is Odysseus. And then she's able to, you know, agree that this beggar Odysseus knows Odysseus. And so that's, that's really interesting that it has to go through that. And I think it's, it's from what Jordan was saying, right? The, the distance between um, the hostess in this case and the beggar has to be pretty strong, um, has to be pretty big comparatively. And that makes sense. So he has to use, and again, we've seen him do this before. He has to use his verbal dexterity and his sort of like making stuff up to be able to tell her that it's okay. You can trust this beggar. That's really interesting. And, and, and sorry, I, I'm just thinking aloud, like about the whole lying thing and deception and what are we going to do with that? But I don't mean to. No, I, you can, you can keep going there. Um, I just want to say, I think Penelope is, giving as good as she's getting to in terms of that verbal dexterity um, when she's talking to the beggar and explaining how she's getting through her situation um, line around 140 um, 138 or so uh, I miss Odysseus my heart is melting the suitors want to push me into marriage but I spin schemes some god first prompted me to set my weaving in the hall and work a long, long fine cloth and then she says what she's doing with um, with the weaving and the unweaving but uh, I spin schemes like the uh, the yes. fantastic punning that's happening there um, I, I love it like you can tell that she and Odysseus are in that way a match for each other that's right and you know that's why I signed on to this particular episode right is because of the <laughs> the weaving um, the weaving and unweaving of the web and um, the spinning of schemes and the telling of tales right. um, that they are a good match in that regard that they're both equally intelligent and inventive and we've mentioned before Victoria an episode that you and I were on before about the uh, the sort of Scheherazade and and the the skill of the of the the weaver of the of the tales that she lives another day without having to go with one of these yucky suitors, right? Um, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't have to lose her head, but doesn't have to marry one of these gross people. And uh, so, in her case, as with Scheherazade, the deception is a survival technique in a lot of ways. Like she doesn't want to have to leave her home. She doesn't want to go with one of these guys. But his deception is is different to me. 
and I don't really quite know what to do with that because sometimes it feels a little, a little mean. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, let me put it this way. You know how in the Bible Joseph doesn't tell his family, his brothers, that he's Joseph? Yes. <laughs> I just do not like that. And the more I read it, the more sort of annoyed by that. I get like, what is the point of playing around with them? I feel like he's playing with her. This could just be my own like personal, I don't know, whatever. But I've always been bothered by that. But he, he's been that way the whole time, right? I mean, not that that's an excuse, because I, I do, I think Odysseus is kind of a tool a little bit. Um, but, <laughs> but like, we knew that the whole time, right? Why Leodysseus and like, it's his whole, Athena tells us that. And, yeah. um, you know, Athena, even for a god, also a jerk. So, you know, if she, if she calls you kind of a jerk, then you're probably kind of a jerk. What, you know, what motivates uh, that, right? Um, that sort of delay? <laughs> Could it be pride or, or kind of a, isn't it kind of fun to just extend this out? And I'm thinking of Joseph in some ways more than Odysseus, but I'm thinking of them both. Like, is it, I think there's kind of a pride there. It's like, oh, ha, ha you know, I'm going to just, you know, then it's gonna, the great reveal is going to be so great. I don't know. <laughs> something kind of partly it's that right like i i think he relishes kind of the the big reveal particularly when yes. we get when we get later into um book 21 and and the archery contest shapes up like it's clear that he's relishing this whole scene setting thing that's happening but maybe um just to to defend him a little bit um you know he's had to sort of journey and fight and scheme and scheme against deities and all of this stuff for this many years maybe he just doesn't exactly know how to turn it off like couldn't that be part of it you're so kind and forgiving victoria i mean no i don't <laughs> like him i think he's gross generally but like i feel i feel like if you I feel like if you do that for that long, you probably just get used to doing it. Plus, I That's mean, the gods are more terrible than Odysseus. Oh, yeah. So... Oh, by far. By far, which does not mean that being terrible is somehow, you know, forgiven. But yes, they are worse. But I mean, you and I were talking about it in that other episode, how long he stays with Calypso, right? It's like... Yeah, you're trying to get home, but not really working at it that hard. And then there's this section in this book where he says, the beggar says about him, oh, he's just out like getting fortunes and stuff, and then he's going to come back. Do you remember that? Um, he I says, the beggar says about Odysseus, the reason why he's been away so long is he's out gaining as much money as he can, kind of like you know, lining up the lucre. I, I'd have to find it, uh, you know. And I and I thought, and I wrote in the margin, I'm like, is that really what he was thinking about it? You know, because this is, of course, Odysseus telling why Odysseus did this. Oh, and right. I, I just remember being kind of surprised. Like, was that really part of it? Because uh, it didn't seem like it was to me. But it, as you said, like, Odysseus is a narrative builder. So, like, 
I don't know that it matters if it's true or not, but it's like it's a good story and a story that makes sense given certain important cultural things, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder, speak, speaking of the context of culture, I wonder if that particular detail isn't I, – I wonder if that's meant to be reassuring but is kind of lost on us now. Because, I mean, this we talk about this in other episodes, but, I mean, this is a this is a world in which basically everybody is a Viking or a pirate. <laughs> uh, I mean, we you know, in the Iliad episodes, we talked about, you know, there's the the whole logistical apparatus of the Achaean army at Troy is to go loot stuff because they, they don't have a supply chain. They just have to go get what they need. You know, they're mm-hmm. living off the land and. Over the course of ten years, getting further and further and further afield, which is how Achilles gets a hold of Briseis and that whole issue. So, I, I, again, maybe this is, this is a tiny detail, but may, maybe Odysseus in uh, I'm about to quote the Big Lebowski in the parlance of their oh no is yay <laughs> is a. Uh, is about to, is it, I don't know why I settled on that phrase. Is a uh, he's trying to maybe reassure um, Penelope that he's still out there. He's he's doing something that's worthwhile, and sooner or later he's going to bring that stuff back. And and I don't know. I mean it, that that could be one of those cultural chasms that's just open between us and them that makes him sound ickier than he necessarily is. I I think that's a fair point, and I don't think it's a tiny detail because I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the ways in which Odysseus sets himself. I mean, I know it's not Odysseus talking, it's the beggar talking, but it is Odysseus talking. Um, <laughs> sets himself up as the opposite of the suitors, right? Because they, they're not doing that. They're not um, about security. They're about drinking and squandering the hospitality that they know has to be there for them Mm. so it's kind of another way for him to point to like odysseus is out there doing the right thing and these putzes are you know (laughs) jerking around that's a good point maybe instead of a tiny detail we could say it's a telling detail yeah i i think that is better yeah, the more I read these texts, the more I realize they really are about tale telling, aren't they? Um, holding the audience captive, making the story last longer in some ways. And we kind of have to fit Odysseus in with that somehow and, and, and be okay with with him wanting to, to wait to reveal his disguise without necessarily having any motive for that. Um you know, I'm, I'm okay with that because it feels, I don't know, like the ancient world's Netflix or something. <laughs> okay, so I, I wasn't going to make this point right now, but now I am because you said Netflix. So um, <laughs> what's the deal with Penelope talking about her bed the way she talks about her bed? She's basically uh, pulling a Netflix and chill with Odysseus, right? Like... She's Wait, com- which part? She's come is- she's coming on to him, right? She's like there are these descriptions of her bed. She's like I really want to go to sleep. I'm really tired in my really nice bed and she's like describing the bed clothes to the to the beggar. And Okay, I totally missed that. It's this I I crazy don't know where intense, I was. What like, book is that in? Um it's at the end of book 
19 or the beginning of book 20. Let me find it. But I was... Oh, yeah, we definitely have to look at that. I was so confused. Like, I didn't understand if it was a sex thing or if I just thought it was a sex thing. Well, no, because the reason why I'm asking is I also wanted to sign up for this section because I thought it included the olive tree bed scene, but that's not until, like, book 22 oh, or 23. maybe that's different. Right? There, um, yeah, I knew it wasn't, like, the big... The, big bed part but there's no okay i'm seeing it on page 443 of our edition right um i would i will go up and lie down on my bed which is a bed of grief is that what you're talking about all stained with tears that i've cried since he went off to see Vilian, the town i will not name yes i will lie there and you lie in this house spread blankets on the floor have the slaves make a bed yeah it's a little bit more detail than is necessary for the moment and and then at the beginning of book 20, there's more of a description of, like, the juxtaposition of his blankets on the floor. So, I don't, like, something is going on there, right? I'm there's not, some detail. I'm not yeah, just not being a dirty. Lot of detail. No, but, you know. I don't know. Save us, Jordan. Let me, let me read it, like, read through it really quickly in bagels just to see what I can make of it. So, so now I'm going back to my room upstairs and lie down on my bed. That bed of pain my tears have streaked year in, year out. From the day Odysseus sailed away to sea, destroy, I call it. I hate to say its name. There I'll rest while you lie here in the hall, spreading your blanket somewhere on the floor, or the women will prepare a decent bed. I don't... I mean, she's kind of making herself sound pitiful, is what it sounds like to me. Just kind of reminding the beggar of what you know what the situation is, and... The, the details about, you know, blankets on the floor or the women will prepare a decent bed seems to be an offer of hospitality. Yeah, that's the thing that makes uh, it tricky, right, Jordan, is that so much of this, as you know, Victoria, the poem is about hospitality mm -hmm. and the clean sheets and the, you know, the sort of like making even a beggar welcome that it, those details kind of are accounted for in that way, right? She's giving him options for accommodation. Options. Yeah, <laughs> but it is weird, at the very least, that she that she mentions mentions her own bed at that moment. But yeah, mm -hmm. but the rest of it, it's like she's trying to let him know that he's got because he, he's refused this, right? He's he's like, no, I want to sleep on the floor, basically. Right? Isn't that what his whole like? I'm not going to have the nicer sheets. I'm just going to sleep on the floor. Yeah, I, I think he um, he is really, really acting the part of the, the beggar here. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so on the topic of hospitality, what do we make of the fact that uh, early in book 20, the slave girl prays that the suitors will be killed? Like, doesn't that violate some principle of hospitality? But do the slave girls have to have the same kind of um, point of view as as the main, like the keeper of the house, the the hostess? Because I just I took that as like, yeah, the hostess has to put up with this crap because she's the hostess. But the people who are on the ground having to do all the actual work, we hate them. Because they yeah. yeah, that seems fair, I guess. Calf and we have to do the goats, and we have to clean up after these people. That's the way that I read that. It's like, on the ground, the people who are actually doing the hospitality stuff. 
Right. Because the slaves, you know, I mean, obviously this is an extremely wealthy household. And these people, you can just imagine how much food prep they're constantly doing, right? I mean, that's the thing that, of course, strikes everybody about the, the, the Odyssey, how much food there is in it. Mm-hmm. And with these people mooching off of this estate continually and the constant mention of how much food they're eating, they're spending their whole days preparing food, these slave girls. Yeah, they work really hard. And like that that is the thing that kind of sticks out to me the most this reread is how much female slaves make male victories happen in the Odyssey. Correct. Like because they're, they're doing yeah, all the all the behind the scenes work. So, yeah, you're you're right. If I were that slave girl, I'd probably be uh, <laughs> wishing for an anvil to fall on those guys' heads too, or <laughs> but whatever. It's interesting, Victoria, isn't it that that got in the poem, right? Like that somehow entered in. Like it would not be something you would think would be in there. And then right, at, I guess not right after that. It's a hundred something lines later, but um. 285-ish, but still Athena would not let the suitors refrain from hurtful insults and abuse, so even deeper bitterness would sink into the heart of great Odysseus. So there's a degree to which Athena is making the suitors be jerks. So like, Mm -hmm. are they really jerks? Or is that not a, a useful distinction because of the way the Greek gods work? Jordan, do you have any thoughts about that? Because I have no idea. I mean, to say she would not let the suitors refrain hurtful insults and abuse makes it like they just want to do hurtful insults and abuse, and she's just not letting them stop. Yeah, I think that's the angle I'd probably take on it because because it's kind of like that. Speaking of Joseph and Egypt, uh, there's that notorious passage about God hardening Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus. Uh, and, you know, what to make of that, like how responsible is Pharaoh for everything that happens and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in, in Greek, in Greek theology, anyway, you can always, you know, punt again and say that even Athena is bound by the fates. So I don't know. I mean, it's I, we talk about this in at least one other episode that I was on and, and I don't know where we wound up. I can't remember if we reached any conclusion, but. I would I would probably just say that again it, it's it, like like you put it Athena is just allowing them to do something they would do anyway because um, she certainly exercises much greater levels of outright manipulation at other times right I, I don't know it is it is kind of another puzzle that's um, o- only comes to the forefront occasionally in, in passages like that. Right, but it is, in fact, so interesting how many passages deal with the suitors mm-hmm. and what they're doing. So just one page over, and this is um, line, you know, of course, book 20 and line 310, uh, Victoria, in our book 456, but 310, that whole section around line 310, um, when that random guy, the random suitor throws an axe or an ox foot, whatever that is, at Odysseus, you remember that? And the text reads, you were very lucky you failed to hit the stranger. He avoided the blow himself. I would have thrust my sword right through your belly, and your father would have held your funeral, not your wedding. And this is Telemachus. 
So from now on, you should, you all should stay in check here in my house. I used to be a child, but now I understand things good and bad. And this is going back to your point, Victoria, about Telemachus's growth. I have to watch and put up with all this, the slaughtered sheep, the food, the wine. It is hard for a single man to put a stop to such a multitude. But please back down from your hostility to me, or if you still, if you do still want to kill me with bronze swords, go on. I want you to. It would be better to die than have to watch you suitors acting so horribly, abusing strangers, dragging the house girls through my home, molesting them. Wow. I would like to know, Jordan, what your translation has on that. Does it, is it that clear about that they're molesting the house girls? Uh yeah, almost. It, it says uh, in this one, it says uh, guests treated to blows, men dragging the serving women through our noble house, exploiting them all. No shame. You know, this um, is Telemachus growing up and just saying, you know, right? Like, this right. is not okay. Yeah, he's, he's calling it out. Yeah. It's a remarkable passage. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting there, there's an interesting parallel to an earlier passage too, because when uh, Telemachus leaves on his journey to go see uh, Menelaus at all, uh, he tries to he tries to kind of exert some kind of authority. He gathers people and addresses them, and I, I can't remember the import of his speech, but he tries to kind of harangue them a little bit like this earlier, and they laugh at him. But in this instance, I mean, at least in my translation, the the very next line is dead quiet. The suitors all fell silent, hushed. Yeah. Like he's he's he has arrived. <laughs> There's like a um, mic drop moment there, right? Like boom. Absolutely right. You guys are abusing uh, the hospitality stuff here. Mm-hmm. And then, after that mic drop moment, then on top of it, we get the prophecy about the suitor's death that they ignore. So what are we to make of that? Like, does that exist just so they cannot pay any attention to it and, and they deserve what, what comes at them? I, it seems like sort of a cherry on top of a cherry that already got put on top, right? <laughs> and such a great prophecy, at least in the Wilson translation. I never paid attention to it. Until I saw this translation, they lost control of their faces. Bits of meat began to drip with blood, right? I just saw this prophecy in a way that I never saw it before. Bodies are wrapped up in night, screams blazing out like fire. I mean, it's, it's a vicious prophecy of their death. It made me think of, this is so silly, but it made me think of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> And the, it's uh, not silly. The, the like, melting <laughs> Nazi faces? It's not silly mm-hmm. at all. There's a lot of melting in this translation. Screams blazing out like fires, battering blood. It's very, very violent. And, of course, this has nothing on the later violence that's going to, you know, happen at the end of the book. Um, but the fact that they don't seem to be bothered at all, at least by this, right? Mm-hmm. The very, it's a very vivid prophecy, is my point here. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to the, the how responsible are they for this kind of issue. I, I think the, that, that was a really striking comparison with Raiders of the Lost Ark, because to, to dwell on that for a second, the Nazis should know what is going to happen when they open the Ark. 
Uh, they I mean, should, yes. Right, and and they do it anyway. And by the same token, I mean, there's I can't remember which of the suitors it is, but there's one who is actually described as somebody that Penelope actually likes quite a bit. Uh, he's he's the most level-headed. He actually talks them down from some of their more harebrained schemes a couple of times, and he actually has a chance to escape at one point, mm. or you know, b- before all the slaughter begins. Uh, but he stays. He just kind of he, he just decides not to make a decision and just keeps hanging around, and he dies too. Interesting. Uh, so I, I want to get to book 21 pretty soon, but before we do, um, I want to talk about the just magnificent cliffhanger <laughs> that we get at the end of book 20. Um, and I, I want to hear from your <laughs> translation to uh, Jordan, but uh, I'm just going to read a, a few lines um, from the Wilson here. Uh, so the suitors give a boneheaded annoying plan and then uh, Telemachus ignored the suitors words and watched his father quietly still waiting for when they should attack the shameless suitors the beautiful Penelope had wisely set up her chair to face them and she listened to what each man was saying they had killed numerous animals and made their banquet with laughter but no dinner time could be less welcome than the one the mighty man and goddess would soon bring them in revenge because they started it and wronged him first I love it. Isn't that amazing? It's like I love it. Some combination of like a five-year-old and Rambo, because <laughs> it says like they started it, and then it's like no dinner time could be less welcome. Like uh, just I don't know. It sounds like the uh, movie theater it's trailer so voice. I love it. It's so like good. A, Only to be paralleled at the end of book twenty-one, which I'll talk about later. But yeah, what a great cliffhanger. <laughs> Like a, one of those famous Arnold Schwarzenegger one-liners. Yes. Like, here it comes. I'll be back. <laughs> uh, I'm, a big, let me see. I'm a big Terminator 2 fan. I don't know if you know this, Jordan, but... Oh, oh, I am as well. I, I was thinking of... Uh, I was thinking particularly of uh, Predator. When he oh, yes. He oh, throws yeah. a machete into a guy and says, stick around, and I'm, I'm not going to do the voice. <laughs> Could be fun. <laughs> Uh, Fagels translates that interestingly as well. Um, I'll start where you started, Victoria. Uh, so they jeered, but the prince paid no attention. Silent, eyes riveted on his father, always waiting the moment, or uh, yeah, always waiting the moment he lay hands on that outrageous mob. And all the while, Icarius's daughter, wise Penelope, had placed her carved chair with an earshot at the door so she could catch each word they uttered in the hall. Laughing rowdily, men prepared their noonday meal. Succulent, rich, they butchered quite a herd. But as for supper, what could be less enticing than what a goddess and a powerful man would spread before them soon? A groaning feast, for they'd been the first to plot their vicious crimes. I like that a lot. And that's not the first time that uh, Fagels translates something as a groaning feast. Even in this book, I can't remember. Uh, we were looking at a pa- another passage earlier, and the same metaphor was use the idea of like a, a table about to buckle under the weight of the food um so i mean it's it's a, a potent and by this point very familiar image that homer is employing here and it, it makes sense in terms of of everything we've been saying about the centrality of the shared meal to to this um 
cultural mm -hmm. experience. Okay, so let's let's dive into book um, twenty one here. Um, what is the deal with this archery contest? Why is it important, and and why does it happen the the way it happens? Well, what struck me about it was the constant emphasis from the suitors and even from Telemachus that if I'm one-upped by so-and-so, it's going to be humiliating. The whole concern with, I can't let somebody who is more of a weakling than me or older one-up me on this kind of contest. Uh, just a total manly kind of, you know, this is masculinity, is to, is to be able to do this feat. Um, and so that makes... Penelope's choice of it so interesting and prescient in so many ways. Um, and, and, and in fact, not only are they worried about deep humiliation, but the deep humiliation for years to come. The stories that people will tell about them, right? Right. The concern is that they will be telling they they will talk like that and they will show uh, you know our humiliation if we cannot even like string a bow and do half of what this beggar is doing, or you know and Telemachus just to speak to that issue that you raised earlier, Victoria, about him like his growth, he just also has this weird moment where he's just like if I can't do this then I might as well leave. Did you guys have some thoughts about that? I think it is very interesting how all in for this competition everybody is. Like, even Penelope refers to herself as the prize. Like, she is yeah. on board with this narrative. And even after she's on board with it, I don't know which suitor it is, some suitor basically says like i don't even care about her uh the important thing here is that we don't all look like a bunch of wusses <laughs> like so somehow it gets even grosser than her like willingly offering herself up as uh victor's prize here and everybody's just okay with it i don't know i know that's my 21st century sensibility encroaching on things but i just it's so weird to me It's so weird. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Greek society was so competitive, though. I mean, like, I mean, they, they celebrated, you know, all of their religious festivals, or m many of their religious festivals involved competitions. I mean, the Olympics. Sure. Uh, what, what was the, uh, the city, the city, Dion was it the city Dionysus? I can't remember the exact name of the festival. The one they wrote all the the tragedies and comedies for, I mean, those were judged in contests. And of course you get funeral games and, you know, throughout uh, the Iliad. It's what I tell my students is, you know, think, think of that one friend or cousin you have who is, who everything has to be a contest <laughs> like that. Yeah. That's the ancient Greeks. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised that they jump at this. What, what struck me about it, I, I think in the case of Telemachus, I think he's baiting them. I, th I think okay. you know he he knows what's coming, so I think he's egging them on. You know. Oh yeah, and, he's like, oh, we're gonna lock the doors, and here we go. 
Right. It's like, oh man, you know, that, you know, this is the end for me. I'm going to have yeah. to leave now. And, and <laughs> knowing all the time that, you know, Odysseus is about to go Liam Neeson on them. Yes. Um, yeah. I, the, I uh, did think it was funny that Telemachus kind of gets high on his own drama. Yeah. <laughs> it, and very relatable to be fair. Definitely. Well, I mean, if, when you, when you see Nemesis approaching, someone so clearly who deserves it so much it is very hard to suppress that shot in Freuda. and in greek society there is no reason to so es- especially so, uh, when you have zeus literally providing sound effects for your big reveal yes. oh right oh my gosh absolutely definitely the thunderous you know the clap here we go <laughs> Something, uh, something related to a point you were making earlier, though, Victoria. I, I think uh, going back to the seeming, you know, what what is going on with Odysseus's deceptions. I think to, Telemachus, especially now that he has the confidence that things things are going to turn out okay, is so impetuous. And I I think when we see Odysseus with you know toying with people. Um, certainly he is enjoying it too much, but I think the way that he is slowly insinuating himself back, you know, fr- from the outside edges in, right, from a, you know, a swine herd to the actual vestibule and then finally the, the heart of his home, um, you know, not revealing himself until it is strategically advisable to do so. I think that's, at least for Homer, a sign of his maturity as opposed to Telemachus, who is you know rip roaring and ready ready to go, which we we kind of see here, uh, but Odysseus stays cool and actually <laughs> maintains the deception right up until the very end. Which is isn't it only so that he can really unleash it? Oh yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it, yeah, it's definitely the dramatic effect of it. He does maintain the deception. I don't know that I would say he stays cool though. He is flat out. A, ta- yeah. He is flat out taunting the swine and goat herders and with he, himself. Yeah. He like, he's uses angry. himself as a threat. So, yeah, I he's he's keeping it going. But I I think I don't know that he's keeping his cool. He's enjoying it a lot. He's enjoying yeah, yeah, it so a, much, right? Yeah, really, setting it really all up point. for that. <laughs> He's setting I, I it guess, up for that. Right. And I, I guess what I mean is that he manages not to tip his hand, um, which... So that he can set it up for a bigger victory. Right, right. He's, he's the experienced gambler who knows when to take risks and when not to. Oh, exactly. Um, for the big show at the end. Right, where Telemachus is just now coming into his own. Yeah. But, boy, I mean... I hate to use a 21st century term, but toxic masculinity, you know, it's like <laughs> I, I have to lock the doors, set up these these axes and, you know, shoot through them. And then I'm going to go kill everybody. Um, I, you know, I know we're not supposed to be talking about the next sections, but I still just can't get over that. Now, I have to just admit to you guys that part of my problem is that I still can't get out of my head the movie. We need to talk about Kevin. Have you either of you seen that? I have not. It looked like it would okay. be too much for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't yeah. seen it either. That's probably wise, Victoria. But let's just put it that way. It's like the the idea of killing as the kind of ultimate masculine thing, right? It, that there's no other answer but for Odysseus to slaughter these suitors and lock them in there so that he can just have, you know, just go to town on them. 
you know? So <laughs> there's something just deeply disturbing about him kind of like holding back his rage so that he can just slaughter everybody. Mm-hmm. Is that just 21st century, like being uh, like a snowflake or is that just like possibly troubling for Homer too? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, but I will answer your question with another question. Are there Odyssey action movies? And if not, why not? I know Troy is a thing, but like, why are there not a thousand action movies of this? Totally. Jordan, Jordan, you need a whole historian, Jordan. Uh, okay. We, we do talk about Odyssey movies in a couple of other episodes. I know Coyle has seen a couple. I think there's one with Kirk Douglas that I have not seen. I have seen the one with Armand Asante from the nineties, which weirdly was a Hallmark production. Um, <laughs> Which is, which is hard to fathom now. Um, and it does, uh, the, the, the slaughter of the suitors in the hall is a really rip-roaring, expertly produced suspense action set piece at the end of that. Um, right, like why is that uh, not a Jason Statham joint or something? Yeah, hmm. I mean, that, that is a... Because most of the other... Um, I'm trying to think of adaptations where they where they've you know transmuted the story somehow and i you know by this point this is almost like an entry on a bingo card if i'm on this one of these episodes but i'll mention oh brother where art thou which is a comedy yeah uh, and ulysses uh, you know subverts that by getting his tail kicked every time he resists someone mm-hmm. uh there's cold mountain by charles yeah. frazier yeah oh, i always forget that yeah yeah yeah. yeah, it's 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 been forever since I've read it, uh, but I know that there is you know some serious combat with the Home Guard in mm-hmm. North Carolina mm-hmm. at the end of that, which yes. in which Inman does slay some of the suitors, uh, but is himself also killed. Spoiler alert! Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, and and read it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to. Uh, that's a good point, though. I mean, may, maybe it's it's not so much that they're not a lot of odyssey action movies but that the that that model of the careful tension and build up you know with the final kind of explosion at the end is just you know is is a structure that has been copied by a zillion action movies even right. if the it's particulars. everywhere right right what right. you're saying is that it's everywhere so you can't identify it anymore right yeah yeah i think that's exactly right i like that because it, you know, it's it's not just I'm going to, you know, lock the doors and kill everybody. I'm going to lock the doors and let everybody see my prowess at doing this like amazing arrow shot through the axes, and then I'm going to kill everybody. Right? It's and the and the arrow through the axes made me think. You know, you mentioned the Olympics, Jordan, of the uh, you know, um, what's this the the biathlon where you do the skiing and then you have to shoot. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some of that in there. Like I'm doing all this physical activity, and then I have to be calm enough to show that I can, you know, shoot my arrow through all of the the center of these axes. Um, th- that is like the heroic in a nutshell. You know, the the super calm hero who can then just slaughter people. Yeah, that that calmness comes back um, at the end of book twenty one to. Uh, because do you do you guys remember how he 
how he gives Telemachus the signal that it's like time to burn everything down. Oh, right at the at the very end. He, right at the... he signals by wiggling his eyebrows. Yes, yes. Like <laughs> more, more action movie stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is what I was talking about. Like the ultimate cliffhanger. When I reread this again this evening, I was like, "Oh my goodness, this is amazing writing." With his eyebrows, he signaled, and his son strapped on his sword, picked up a spear, and stood beside his chair next to his father, his bronze weapons flashing. You know, and then it ends. <laughs> you got flashing <laughs> weapons. What do you got in Fagels? Because it can't be as good as that, Jordan. It is not. It, it, it is. It's, it's more dramatic, I'll put it that way. He paused with a warning nod, and at that sign, Telemachus, etc., etc., uh, but Fagel's does end with an ellipsis rather than a period, which... Uh, oh, that's nice. I, yeah, I know when I read this part, I went straight on into book 22 without going to do anything else first. Right, so. right because the, you know it's coming, you know. Right. And I just love the Wilson translation because bronze weapons flashing, it's like it is a kind of 21st century digital moment there. It's like it's flashing. Here we go. Yeah, she she does everything but play the boys are back in town over the closing line. Yeah. Like she she really hangs a nail on yeah. it, which I love. I love it too. Again, love this translation. Love it. Yeah, I I am also so into the Emily Wilson translation. It's so much fun. Uh, okay, it looks like we're coming up on an hour. Um, do you? Either of you have any final thoughts on the end of book 21 before we wrap this up? No, that that is what I wanted to end on with the bronze flashing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Uh, you heard it here first. Uh, come for extended scenes of deception and uh, stay for action movie cliffhangers. Uh, this has been the core curriculum, a production of the Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, thanks for listening, and we hope you stay with us for the rest of the Odyssey. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>